Hello, and welcome to The Block Explorer. I'm Colin Brightfield. Hey folks, I'm Cash Upton. The Block Explorer is here to educate and inspire you about the world of crypto and NFTs. We'll do deep dives into critical concepts for understanding what's happening and discuss the current events shaping the space. We're making this podcast for the curious, the free thinkers, and the change makers that propel us forward. As we embark on our adventures, remember that none of this is financial advice and crypto can be risky. In this episode, we discuss value, scarcity, and how they relate to the digital space as crypto, Web3, and NFTs begin to shift what's possible in the realm of digital value. We're going to get into some philosophy here, but it's important to explore these topics because these new innovations offer a lot of new possibilities, and we want to know what that means as we move forward and how that will shift how value gets created in the future. So let's begin with the basics. The theme of this episode is scarcity. So we all are familiar with that. In our physical world, there is only a certain number of things. Um, you know, even gold, there's an infinite supply, but it has a stock to flow ratio, which makes it more scarce than other metals, right? So there's this whole physicality of, of scarcity, um, but we don't necessarily see that in the digital world until now. Yeah. So everything is scarce in the physical world, pretty much, right? We're used to this paradigm of everything being scarce. And now we have this new digital world that cropped up, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, that we've been living in till, till very recently where uh, we had this sense of abundance because, you know, it's very easy to replicate things in the digital world. And uh, we kind of saw that, you know, with Napster and things like that, that, that started up and um, all these different, you know, you can just copy and paste the code, right? It's, it's free to replicate. And I mean, that, that opens up a ton of cool possibilities, but also, uh, you know, you saw a lot of projects and, and attempts to, to circumvent this, right? You have like DMR, DRM licensing that like, you know, the music industry introduced and kind of this whole way that we kind of shifted, right? You're, you're, you were telling me earlier about streaming platforms and how we could do, we do that. Now you don't really own things anymore. Right. No one pays to download a movie necessarily that you might pay to watch it on Amazon Prime, but you're not actually physically downloading the data of the movie. You're, you're paying for the streaming service. Yeah, you're paying for the right to stream it, but the actual content is still owned by Amazon or Google Play or whatever, Apple, whatever. And uh, I mean, I guess you can download it to your device, but even then, like some of them have like certain limits, like they're after 30 days, they delete, like they're still kind of, ha- they're still kind of gated in their uh, silo of their, of their software. You know, you don't actually own the digital good. So now we have crypto, right? And crypto and Web3 has ushered in this new kind of sense of digital scarcity. And we've had, we've had other versions of this that we just mentioned, but now this is kind of new potent form of digital scarcity. Yeah. NFTs are hitting the market um, in a big way, which is uh, kind of the, the, the culmination or kind of the, the product that we're seeing of uh, creating scarcity um, digitally and anything from NFTs to even the basic uh, Bitcoin. Bitcoin itself is scarce. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin out there. So that is a scarce digital item right there. Yeah. So, you know, scarcity is built into the, the crypto values. That's why we have, you know, this idea of value at all for, you know, why, why Bitcoin is, you know, essentially it's valuable because it's scarce. And um, 
we've seen this, like you said, with NFT projects. But you know, why, you know, why why even discuss this right now, right? And the the point is because now there's there's some ways of creating scarcity that maybe seem, in my mind, more legitimate. Or, you know, because we now we live in this sense of digital abundance, but but then there's also scarcity being introduced. And how is that scarcity being introduced? Like, why was it 21, only 21 million Bitcoin? Why couldn't it have been 25 million or 30 million or 10 million? Right. So, you know, there's there's these questions that, you know, some of these decisions that get made, they kind of maybe seem arbitrary, but then they actually end up having like real impact you know like like why only 10,000 crypto punks or only 10,000 board apes it could have been 20,000 it could have been 5,000 and like someone just made that decision you know um where you see some other projects that we're going to highlight that that maybe tie scarcity to, to some other ways so let's kind of review just like quickly like you know some basic economics 101 and the idea of the economy of scarcity versus the economy of abundance and kind of lay that out and then we're going to get into some examples for people of how these scarcity concepts function in the digital space. And we actually will highlight some projects then that are great examples of applying different kinds of scarcity. So the basic concept of scarcity is uh, there's a mismatch between the limit um, of the resource and the consumer demand. Um, we live in California. We know there's a scarcity of real estate. 100, 150 years ago, there was no scarcity, right? Because the demand wasn't there yet. And now the demand outpaces the actual um, resource limits. Yeah, exactly. So we see this economy of scarcity everywhere that we look in the physical world. This has kind of been the name of the game for millennia. And um, but it does change here and there. Like you said, like, you know, sometimes, you know, in the beginning, you know, land was maybe more plentiful. And now, like, housing prices are record highs. Um, but we also see, you know, things with, um, the relationship within, you know, how this relates to supply, right? So, you know, we have that just basic like supply and demand. That's what you're kind of explaining. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, then we have to contrast this, you know, we have the fact that scarcity is what drives prices higher. And when we have marketing campaigns that are just, you know, a lot of the times they're just kind of inflating or conflating this idea of scarcity you know like there's only going to be this many but this that's kind of an arbitrary thing too sometimes you see yeah there's a really interesting npr about the formation of the gmc car brand and they took over ford and they started beating out ford because they were offering new newer models and they were creating this consumer demand for something that was new that wasn't even existing yet because they they were wanting to like incentivize um, more demand that that for a product that wasn't even there yet. Yeah, and and uh, I I mean I'm always re reminded of the one of the greatest examples of this is the De Beers diamonds and just like the diamond industry in general. And you know I mean this whole ethical issues that we're not we're not going to get into with that, but just the whole fact that you know they they cap how much they can yeah mine. they just sit on a bunch of diamonds yeah and they only release so many a year just to keep the price super high. And manipulate the market that way, right? So that's a that's an interesting way of our you know artificial scarcity introduced in the physical in the physical world. And uh, right, you see cartels, um, you know, the oil OPEC, and you know, making a, a set amount of production that's available, and yeah, artificially um, determining how scarce something is. Yeah. So 
now we move on to the economy of abundance and, you know, abundance means, you know, having a lot of resources. So, you know, this means that you have almost unlimited resources, like in the digital world where digital project products are easy to create, they're easy to copy and they're easy to transfer and uh, amplify to millions of people. So, you know, it's really, you know, to iterate code is, is software is it's cheap, right? Right. Copy paste. It's all there to, to replicate very easily. And I think one of the greatest examples is, is that we mentioned earlier is the whole what happened with the music industry. And all of a sudden, you know, instead of buying CDs, everyone was just doing MP3s. And, and uh, you know, we, we saw the rise and fall of Napster and everything we've talked about before. And now it, the music industry is now shifted to this more streaming model which is a different model, but it's not really necessarily better for the artists because, you know, they don't really get that much per stream. And then the fans don't really own anything. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we just saw the platform Royal.io launch to, you know, provide tokenized ownership of a song to then um, distribute royalties to multiple owners. But they're still streaming those songs on platforms. They're not necessarily, you know, selling the song as an nft which we thought was maybe going to be one route and that that is happening in some places but they they went for the let's keep everyone wants to stream let's just you know tokenize ownership and and provide a a scarce number of owners that can uh, participate in owning that song yeah i think i think the music industry is actually a particularly interesting example because you know thinking about it when you go back in the day like music was incredibly scarce because before recording you had to be present with the musician who was playing music at that time for you so music and you know not that many people were were able to play music so it was like wow like you know that was real scarce and then over time right then we had uh recording uh technology come in and now you you know music got more common and more abundant but it still had to, it was still attached to a good that you had to own, like vinyl, like you had to go buy the record still, and you still had to like buy a physical thing that you owned. And then, you know, go through cassettes and, and, and then CDs. And then you go from that's all kind of scarce still, right? Um, because even CDs, right, it's still like a product that you have to own to play the music. And then you go into this digital world with MP3s. And then like music was even like free for a lot of people for a while, if you participated in that or not. And then the streaming platforms, started up and so we went from uh, music went from living in an economy of scarcity to an economy of abundance and it like literally broke music for a while it just like broke the industry and then that's why like a lot of artists like they shifted their business model is to playing live shows right and like their main money makers for the past like decade or and or maybe even two decades has been like live shows and like the music they're just like okay i just want to like get some money from that if i can and then really monetize my shows and my merch. And, and that's how they, they make their living. And, and now and we're seeing this going to shift again because now we're going to go from the kind of the abundance that's happening with, with digital, the digital era prior. Now we have crypto web three. It's allowing musicians to re-enter the economy of scarcity with NFTs and create goods again. Right. And, and make good music, right? Because so many musicians had to go for the more poppy, what's going to be catchy on the radio. There's all these algorithms that they're trying to get the most listeners, but maybe they're not actually doing the art that they love and the, the music that is new and visceral and, and connects with your soul, you know? So, so this is going to be a cool, you know, resurgence of, 
of a revolution of good music. Yeah, because you no longer need to appeal to the masses, even not even just the masses, even like a sub a sub genre. Now you can really niche down and you can have, you know, what Lee Jing calls a hundred true fans. You know, there was this other article that was popular, the a thousand true fans for creators. And there was this idea that, you know, you, you only need a thousand people who pay you a hundred dollars a year and that's a hundred thousand dollars. And that's a decent living for most people to at least get by as a creator. So then it's going to, you know, the internet was going to allow, you know, a flourishing of creators. And that did happen. And he, and he, predicted, he wrote this article, I think in 2008 or 2009. And now we're kind of seeing the next evolution of this, where you can even niche down even further and you can create more value and uh, for your biggest fans and allow them to contribute at a, at, at a value that they would really want to, because you, maybe you have a hundred like diehards that would maybe give you a thousand dollars per year, right. That really love what you're doing and you're creating real value for them. And, and there's a real value exchange and transition and transformation there. That's maybe the future that these NFTs are going to unlock. It's exciting. So uh, we saw some displacement happening, right. As, um, music got cheaper to make or you know going down to almost uh, zero um and and that had a big you know economic effect too yeah because it you know it, it trickles down because now you had all the industries that were relying on that industry that industry like all the places that would make cds or made vinyl or made cassettes or you know sold cds like sam goody i remember some of these like stores from the mall back in the day i mean remember what's the mall <laughs> yeah <laughs> remember that uh yeah so you know this is what what happens it sends a ripple through the economy it displaces workers what if you used to work at a factory that made cds like well that that job's gone so you know th- when when you have new technology introduced and this is a theme we're going to come back to and this is why we're talking about this example because it, it's a great example of how when a new technology can come in and really disrupt an entire industry um, from going from a, a mode of economy of scarcity to an economy of abundance. And then how do you uh, navigate that in a way that doesn't um, hurt the people that are creating the value in, in the industry? And I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of what we hear a lot, a lot of people that I, where we talk to is that um, the way the music industry works right now, at least with the streaming platforms is the musicians don't make very much at all. For, right. uh, you need like two and a half million streams to get like $1,700 or something. I saw someone post on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, a few years ago, people were just having their fans leave their album on repeat when they went to bed at night on Spotify, to, you know, because they were not seeing any revenue. Yeah. Without that. Yeah. So we're excited to see these new models come up and, we're going to have some more examples as we go through this episode, but we're going to kind of circle back to this abundant mindset just to bring up a couple cases that are kind of interesting as well to think about. So, for example, um, this is called the Javens paradox, which is when companies with efficient production lines assume that they'll use fewer scarce resources. But in some cases, actually, the opposite happens because the, the companies become so efficient and good at what they do then demand rises due for due to faster production and greater availability. And then that success then leads, leads to them needing to use higher amounts of that scarce resource than ever before. So I was thinking about this example and I think like Tesla with electric vehicles is a really good example and how like all of a sudden cobalt is a big issue in cobalt mining and a lot of the cobalt mines are in, in like Africa and some of these like 
war-torn countries, so it's just a whole big mess. Yeah, they call it artisanal mining. You know, a child mined it by hand. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and that's just because there's so much demand, right? So they can't have the, the mechanisms in place to ensure that there's a more, you know, safe humanitarian way to mine it or, or something, right? So there's... The, the demand for cobalt got so high that people were throwing their kids in the, in the mines and, and, and wanting to really, you know, get after it. Um, Bitcoin mining is another example, too, right? Yeah. So Bitcoin mining is, a, is another example where Bitcoin mines, if they are able to get somehow a decrease in the amount of energy use expenses they have. So, you know, you, Bitcoin mines are very famous for taking up a lot of energy. Some of them um, are focused on more green energy, and that's great. And they actually show that the share, the studies do show that the share of Bitcoin mined with green energy is higher than the overall mix of energy in the U.S. It's like it's around like 60 percent of um, the energy used to mine Bitcoin is, is sourced from renewable sources. And about overall mix of the United States is about like 50 percent. Interesting. OK, yeah. And we saw a big uh, increase in sustainable uh, energy when it when a lot left China because there's a lot of coal intensity there. Yeah. So, I mean, there's arguments for and against, you know, that I don't think we're going to get too deep into that. But one thing that was interesting to note is that when uh, a new Bitcoin and a Bitcoin mine, if for for instance, they're able to uh, get a lower electricity bill, essentially a more efficient way of, of, of getting the same amount of hash power, which is what you use to mine Bitcoin for a cheaper price. They don't just keep that savings. What they do is they increase their their uh, hash rate until they get their that uh, ratio of what their electricity expense was back to where it was. So say your electricity expense was 10% of your budget, right? And then all of a sudden, you, because you got some more solar in the mix or something, now it's 8% of your budget. Instead of just taking that, that 2% and putting it towards profit, they ramp up production again until it's back to 10% of their overall uh, operating expenses. So it's another example of like, just because they get more efficient doesn't mean they're going to use less. It actually means they just actually use more and more and more. So food for thought um, on this economy of abundance flywheels that can create, that can get get started. And and I mean, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but a lot of that is even tied to our economic policy and just the overabundance of dollars and the fact that we have to constantly increase our GDP to, to see, you know, a, a similar standard of living in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's it's like it's this thing where if, if if you stop moving, then you actually start to go backwards. So you always have to keep growing. You just have to maintain constant growth. Yes, yeah, we've, we've talked we talked a little bit about this before in previous episodes. It's the it's the economic bloat, man. <laughs> the blob needs to keep growing. Right. <laughs> All right. So we talked about some basic economic principles, economy of scarcity, economy of abundance, and how those can kind of interact with one another. Now we're going to touch on digital scarcity a little more acutely and get into actually the the nuts and bolts of what is defining what is digital scarcity and some of the ways those play out in the crypto and Web3 NFT space. So just a basic definition, scarcity must therefore mean that there's some limitation on the digital file in question and limiting the access to it or the ability to make certain changes to it. And so you mentioned this in the beginning um, with like, um, like software, for instance, you, you weren't, they weren't selling software anymore. They're licensing it. Right. So they're limiting the ability to access that file or to have access and use of that. Yeah. You're renting it. Right. So this is software as a service S A A S, which is, you know, a hot tech thing. And there was, there was like a moment in time 
where just like everything just kind of switched to remember like i remember you, you could just go buy like microsoft office or whatever yeah you get a cd yeah you get a cd rom and you install it and they would have a license maybe on the cd case or in the box which would like you know giving you x amount of licenses or whatever and then it switched because we, we we got all, all online and they were just like you know what we can make way more money if we just make this a service and charge people per month and so they are started all doing that and you know they 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 tried to say well you know we will upgrade it for you and you don't have to ever go to the store and buy new things you just you know get these updates and whatnot uh but yeah it was it was a major shift and then you saw that with the whole streaming thing too and i think you know it kind of was i think a way to protect against the economy of abundance that the digital air right what what napsters and torrents were were you know uh, taken away from profits yeah i mean cuz i remember you could even get you know, there were there you could get different, you know, all all different things on torrents back in the day. There was not just not just movies and music. I mean, you could get crazy expensive software like like, yeah. like recording, so, like Pro Tools and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so they had to shift their business model too. I think to protect protect themselves for the you know and stay economically solvent. So that's that's one way of digital scarcity that was that was introduced, and that's kind of that leads us into some of the three different main ones we're going to talk about. And those are partial availability, is digital marking, and algorithmic immutability. And those are some fancy sounding words. We're going to break them down for you and make them easy to understand. So, Cash, start us off. What's partial availability? So that's when the full digital item is unavailable, but instead there's only just a partial form of it available. Um, So if copying or using it is uh, regarded as unproblematic. And um, the partial form of the digital item then uh, constitutes an approximation or limited access to the full item um, and the full item being kept inaccessible except to certain authorized parties. So are we talking like paywalls here? Well, no, it would be just like almost like having your 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 uh, painting in a vault that you own. But then like other people can still look at pictures of of your Van Gogh. Like if you own a Van Gogh, does it, they can look at pictures of the Van Gogh. But it's not the actual Van Gogh, right? Yep. Yeah. So clips that they're showing clips. They're they're not giving you the full content. But go to, to go for more a digital sense. Um, for like for instance, like the Beeple, uh, sixty nine million dollar every days. Uh, one you know the the one that NFT that put it on the you know everyone knows about that one. So that big sale, that Beeple artist, their the original actual uh, JPEG file is pretty big but it's it's like i don't know the exact megabytes off the top of my head um but then what you see like posted you know in articles and stuff is not the actual full-size jpeg of all five thousand images i mean it's not like the the high res version right it's not the like official jpeg one that 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 i was bought by meta covid it's it's like a it's like a you know it's a cheap you know, yeah. a couple kilobyte version, you More know, pixelated. so it's a, so that's a version of almost kind of, it's a digital version of partial availability. Cause you're not actually getting like the, the high res, all like, the megabytes the, of pixels. Yeah. And like the one, the beautiful legitimate, what is considered quote unquote, the original or actually the original, I guess not even take the quotes away. So yeah, that's, that's, that's one way that, that, that can exist. And then this is also, I think this will connect to, to unlockable content with NFTs too. Partial availability, meaning like you can't maybe everyone can look at a board ape, but you can't go into the board ape discord unless you have a board ape NFT in your wallet. I mean, you can go or maybe you can go to the public section of the discord, right? But you can't go to the, the, the private section. So 
and this private section this is gated content, right? So any kind of gated content uh, is also another version of partial availability where you need to, you need to hold a certain token, a certain NFT, etc. So what's the second one? Uh, digital marking. Digital marking is when a digital item is marked in such a way as to identify the author of the mark or otherwise distinguish it. And the mark can be hidden, invisible to people viewing the item, or it can be also plain one then maybe it might seem like plain once it's pointed out. It could be kind of one of those things like hiding in plain sight type of things, or it could be totally evident from the start, or it could be, you know, the scarcity of the item consists of the presence of the mark or its absence. Right. So you think of um, this is very common. And I think in the physical world, you think of this as like lo- like logos from like high fashion brands. Like, oh, if you have like the whatever high fashion brand logo on your shirt, then it's worth a lot more than just a regular shirt because it's got the it's got the physical marking. So digital marking is kind of like a a way that it's like a a, lo- a digital logo or it could be like a signature. Would you uh, say that? The blockchain ledger allows for digital marking on, let's say, NFTs because it shows the canonical ownership, right? So it, it you can see who first created it, and that first creation is in and of itself a digital marking. Exactly. That's exactly uh, on point. Because the blockchain is a public ledger that records history, and that and essentially any any wallet, right, that owned the 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 NFT. Or those tokens, right, is marking it with it with on the blockchain. It's getting marked that that wallet owned that specific piece of art or NFT, and then it was moved to another wallet. So it has that mark for forever. You can never erase the fact that Christie's sold Beeple's every days to Metacoven. That's on Ethereum's blockchain. That can never be erased. That's immutable. It's on there, and that's a mark essentially that marks that specific NFT. With Christie's essentially legitimate signature that legitimizes that exact token versus any other one that might be created later, it's not going to have that transaction attached to it. Therefore, it doesn't have that provenance. Yep, and that's the the beauty of the public ledger right there. Yeah, because someone can go and and copy paste, make a whole another NFT of the exact same piece of art, but it's not going to have that same ledger record of Christie's being the original seller. Yeah. Cool. And then the third one, algorithmic immutability, this is kind of what we get down to with like Bitcoin, right? There's some sort of uh, a digital item that has an algorithm um, that's required for the operation of the output that then restricts the supply or or, um, the abundance of it. And is that like what we would give our listeners the example of Bitcoin? There's only 21 million and that's built into the code. Yes, in, in some ways, I would say that that. But also, this is actually kind of more of just what we were talking about as well, where the mark is also. Essentially, the, the how the blockchain functions as a public ledger is this algorithmic immutability, right? Because no the chain go, is no one can go back and change it, right? And so you you have it you have an algorithm that has a clear path that shows the given history and behavior. So if it was sold or transferred or whatever, you know, this is this is that the, the ledger and everything, all the actions that have happened to that specific piece. Gotcha, and that's yeah, and that's our cryptographic coding that allows for that to to be immutable yes exactly and so uh to contrast these and compare these with some of the scarcity that we work with in the physical world uh let's talk about some examples so we talked about scarcity and physical limitations and so a lot of that is often the easy example is just you know materials that are precious precious metals you know 
gold, oil, cobalt, like, you know, things like that. Um, Oil's not a metal, though. <laughs> Precious resources. But yeah, still the stock to flow. Uh, how, how easy is it to extract it and get it to the market? Yeah. And then we have another kind of scarcity, which, scarcity, which is proximity. So, you know, that's, you know, you need to be in an exact location. So that could be a lot of different things. You know, you scarcity, like for one example is, you know, in, in the physical world is being at the beach, right? Like a lot of people want to go to the beach. Well, you have to live close to the beach, have this proximity, right? It, it's more houses that tend to be more expensive on the coast. So that's, that's an example of proximity or like downtown in a certain neighborhood in a certain city, right? Is going to have, is going to have more desirable. There might be certain more undesirable neighborhoods like downtown Manhattan. There's a lot, there's, you know, there's some proximity scarcity there in function. And that's why it's so expensive. Time's another form of scarcity. Um, so the, the time it takes to, um, play a game or, um, users engage in content. And, and we're seeing that now with like, um, some, some, uh, uh, viewing, uh, you're getting paid by how long you view something, right? Attention tokens is something that is, uh, kind of allowed for because of, um, what the blockchain can kind of provide. Yeah. So time is another really important time, uh, form of scarcity. And we all feel time in the physical world. And that's, you know, a, a scarcity that we all, you know, deal with every second of our lives. And so that's, but then how does this kind of get translated to the digital world? And there's some interesting examples. One of them, like you mentioned, is like time release, different things, like maybe tokens that get released or NFTs, or depending on how long you hold a certain NFT. We're seeing a lot of this start to come up. And uh, I'm excited to see where this kind of form of scarcity pops up. Right. Yeah. There's one NFT project, the bulls on the block where um, you could mutate your bull, but you had to hold on to it until like October to get the original one back. And so they're encouraging you to not resell and to, you know, keep the value of it for a longer period of time. Yeah. And there's another project called Rug Radio, which is a content creation uh, NFT project. And for them, they have one token that you have to hold one NFT that then slowly releases uh, rug tokens to you. And then you need a certain amount of rug tokens to vote on proposals. And so it's pretty much kind of rewarding like the senior, like the people who are long-term believers that hold these tokens the longest then essentially accrue more voting rights to how the system runs. And I kind of like that too, because it really does. It's not just the people who might just be flipping in and out. You really reward the long-term supporters of your project with this time-based scarcity model. Yeah. The early adopters can, can see more benefit from, from not just flipping. Yeah. And then there's another time thing where you think of all these like one a day creators. And we'll talk about uh, Jonathan Mann's song a day man in a little bit, but uh, yeah, there's all these people that kind of do some kind of creative thing once a day. And that's another kind of time scarcity. Last but not least, What's the other one here? Just the aura of the artwork um, in the actual time or space that it's in, right? So like the the, the social kind of um, consensus of it, right? Or, or the popularity of it or, or how it's perceived. Yeah, the social consensus as the object moves through time and space. So like the Mona Lisa, like the history of that painting, like all the drama and like the damage it's gone through and like people like taking it and, and then who's owned it here, where it's been displayed, like like all that can't be replicated. Like there's like, a, I would say it's like the historic patina, but that's, the, but that, that gives it a legitimacy, like no other rep reproduction of the Mona Lisa, no matter how well it's done is going to have taken the same course through history. And so therefore it can't be 
the original Mona Lisa. So uh, when you think about digital works, we're going to touch on this too. It's like, okay, like we talked the providence of, okay, well on the, because the blockchain allows this kind of history of time and space. And we'll, we're going to get into a deeper exp- explanation of that later on. Yeah. And then just a few examples that um, kind of to tie it together, what we just touched on, um, like for instance, uh, someone else, purchasing a board ape owned by a celebrity right so like if steph curry sold his board ape it's going to go for probably a lot more than just the other random board ape out there yeah because this is the idea of the scarcity through the history of a certain item because there's only one board ape that was owned by steph curry i think he only has one so that one you could you could to make the argument that that one could fetch more ETH if it was sold because of the history of the previous owner. And there's a lot of board apes that are owned by celebrities at this point. So one might argue that those and those apes, if they were ever to be sold would deserve a higher price. And, and I think, and I think that would be legitimized, right? So that's, that's kind of one way. Another way is uh, bright moments and they had a proximity scarcity with their NFT launch, because you actually had to go to the gallery. Yeah, you had to go to Venice or New York to actually do the, the minting in real life. I got to go with you when you minted in Venice. That was really exciting. And it, it, it gave this extra layer of uh, just fervor because you were there in person. You weren't just making an NFT on the blockchain in your living room. You were there in person. Yeah, and that introduces, I think, another layer of connection and community because you get to meet everyone that's part of that community when you go and participate in something like that. And it builds this sense of connection to you as the, as the NFT collector too, because you, you didn't just click a bunch of stuff on your computer by yourself, but you participated in this event. And now that NFT almost has like a, is like a memory, you know, and it it represents more to, to me than it than just like some you know some of the other nfts that i hold because of that experience and that memory that's connected to that because i actually had a, a different layer of scarcity introduced it isn't wasn't it just wasn't kind of like a oh there's only ten thousand and that's why it's scarce or there's only this many with a with a red hat and that's why it's scarce no this is scarce because there were you literally had to get an appointment and it was hard to get one and you actually had to go there and 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 be physically present to do, participate in it and then there was a heist and then like a bunch of them got lost so it right. became even more scarce so bright moments kind of created that aura within within your yourself to want to hold it longer and to value it higher than just someone else buying a random one exactly tell me about the mini mats yeah the mini mats is really funny so this guy Matt uh coven he uh put a chip in his hand that's an nfc chip near field communication chip and if you scan it with your phone then he sends you it'll automatically send you a matte sticker nft and the only way you can get this nft is to just find him in real life and And scan (laughs) you scan his hand with your phone so this is just a whole other layer of proximity scarcity and i just find it fascinating actually i find this this is why i you know i we're talking about this stuff i think it's just fascinating that to these to explore this philosophy of what is scarce and how do we define scarcity in the realm of abundance in the digital world especially with these new tools like nfts and crypto and web3 i'm calling it now that's gonna be the next business card oh yeah just scan my hand scan my (laughs) hand i know we've really reached a new level when that's the 
It'll, it'll be on the blockchain. We'll know exactly when we meant, you know, when we had this conversation, you know, you just don't have this business card. You're like, oh, where did I meet this guy again? No, it'll be on the blockchain. It'll have the exact place. It'll have like what you ate, what yeah. you <laughs> what you ordered. And it'll have like, you can even like maybe have like a, the chip. Can You can have like some kind of uh, recording option. So if it like takes notes for you or something. So if you talked about something important, you're like, Oh, what did we even talk about? Oh yeah. It's in my, it's, it's recorded on the, the chip uploaded it. All right. Enough of the, enough of the chip talk, but it, it is, I think it's really cool. Cause it does make me just want to uh, find Matt and get a sticker. Cause I just want to see how it works. Yeah. No, I, 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 it's totally like Jason Bourne having a chip under your skin. You're going into the matrix. <laughs> And then uh, bring it back around. Uh, get get back to the music. There's um, Jonathan Mann did a song a day. Song a day, man. Jonathan Mann. I really like him. He's really cool. He just did a layer zero with David Hoffman, the Bankless podcast. That's more about people and the stories behind them. And he's got an amazing story. I mean, he holds the Guinness Book of World Records for writing a song every single day for over 13 years and 24 days. So it's over 4,772 songs. So that's a pretty amazing accomplishment to just literally just do something creative like that every single day over 13 years. Yeah. Impressive. Really cool. Yeah. So he, he's, he's an impressive guy and he's, he's got, he got into crypto um, pretty early. And so he's, he's, he's smart because he understood that, you know, he wanted to explore what, how could, uh, these crypto tools and and what's being unlocked, uh, what could he do with that with his song a day project? And he tried and ended up creating a DAO, and so he sold all the songs to raise funds for the DAO and create this project. And now every song that he writes every day, it's released as an NFT. It's on auction, and then the ETH that's made from the sale goes into the DAO treasury. And it's pretty. It's pretty awesome. And this would be a scarcity of what time? You just one a day you can only ever do one a day. You can only ever get one a day. So there's a, there's a time element. And then I think, you know, within that time element, there's also like a human labor element. Cause it's not just like, cause there, there's some NFT projects that are released, like, like maybe even some generative art, like ones released per day type of thing. So it's like, okay, they have time because it's only one per day. So they do have that scarcity, but no one, I mean, yes, there's human labor that went into it, I guess. But, um, I don't know. It's it's just, it's just, it's just more discreet and more of a, just a nice kind of bundle or packet when you have like, okay, like I created this one song every single day. And like, that's the the labor that went into that is kind of part of the, in the scarcity too, I guess. I don't know. No, I like it. No, there's a lot of front end coding that went into a generative art piece, but the actual human labor of doing it every single day, you know, adds a whole nother layer. Yeah, like the like like the marginal effort, right? Like there's like there's like the big upfront cost with uh, generative art. I mean, I guess you know, there's like running a community and stuff. Like, I don't want to like I'm not trying to like hate or like diminish anyone that makes generative art and say that's not as hard as you know. I'm not trying to say which is harder. But I'm just saying that there is there is some kind of philosophical difference, I think, between the way that generative art gets made and, you know, have and then versus something like a one a day where you have to have like this, 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 um, this emotional labor that's done every single day um, that's tied to the, the scarcity. And we saw human scarcity uh, in the earlier days of the Internet when there wasn't digital scarcity because there were no blockchain or NFTs that could allow for that. So people were. Um, selling their time on the internet right so 
the internet was used to oh, book an hour of consulting with so-and-so, um, and, and that threw in the human element of it. And again, going back to how many hours in the day can you be producing work? Yeah, I mean, this is you're kind of referencing kind of the creator economy that first kind of this first iteration of the creator economy where it was time for money essentially and you know you're exchanging access for for things and it becomes more of a service economy right and that's kind of where we're shifting now with this this digital scarcity is allowing for digital goods and and those are taking the forms of NFTs or tokens different assets right and these digital goods now are are allowing a new kind of value to be created and exchanged. So let's take a look at some of the a previous tech disruption and how that affected another kind of medium. I think this will give us some insight into what's happening now. So let's look at photography and then how that impacted painting. So we have the philosopher Walter Benjamin. He was born in 1892. Photography versus painting, right? That's what we're talking about here. Um, and he was just in time to see a, a crazy technological revolution in art, um, because before before that, um, the printing press, um, the, there was the lithograph, um, and it had been around, you know, in the late 19th century. Um, but it was really, you know, when photography allowed for you know mass reproductions of certain works. Yeah, I mean, when when photographs came out, everyone there was a lot of pushback and people freaking out because he was born right at the time, right when you had this big revolution happening, and everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, are paintings going to lose their value?" Because now everyone can just look at a picture, a photograph of one, and there was this big uproar. And you know, it was it was really you know before then it was really hard, you know, before 1850 to see anything that resembled really the Mona Lisa. It was just like a rough sketch, you know, by before, unless you actually went and saw it in person. Um, but by the time, you know, Walter Benjamin was in his prime, you could get a Mona Lisa postcard for a penny and then go around the corner to watch a silent film depicting Da Vinci painting it. So he kind of lived through this like crazy transition. And, you know, we just want to ask, you know, like what is, how did that shape value and, 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 what happened afterwards? Right. We, we don't say that photographs aren't valuable or we don't now say paintings aren't valuable. We, we still appreciate the, the first iteration. It's just there's um, a, a greater access that's allowed with technological innovation. So more people have access to the works of digital artists while allowing for digital artists to make a living and have their products not just be copy pasted They're, They can have a scarcity, which increases value. Yeah. And this is where we kind of get at the heart of the, the issue, I think, because with the Mona Lisa, you could argue that the ability to create better reproductions of the Mona Lisa with better printing techniques. And then eventually, you know, the digital air has only increased the value of the original Mona Lisa because now more people are aware of it know about it and it's not like people have slowed down going to the Louvre. i mean obviously with the pandemic but you know as we as you know things recede and i'm no doubts the demand to go see the mona lisa is, is going to be just as high so yeah. you know I, I think you can argue that the internet is a big copy machine and let it copy but then you do want to capture 
some way to make sure that creators that are building the value that people are consuming get paid. And, and so I think, you know, that's kind of what NFTs do. They kind of do this karate move where we're the internet, you know, yeah, it's a big copy machine, let it copy, but then let the value still accrue to the original item and the original artist. Yeah. And having that proof of originality. Um, and, and that's a lot of the, uh, the Aurora, right? The, the, um, the, the appeal is to, to have that original. Yeah. So Benjamin, um, actually wrote, even those reproduction or perfect reproduction of a work of art is lacking in one element, its presence in time and space, its unique existence at the place where it happens to be. I really like that time and place reference. Um, one NFT project that's coming out on the Chinese New Year is in um, protest to the Beijing Olympics. And the artist, Badi Chao, specifically says supporting this NFT is a, a stand in time and in history against a certain thing. For him, it's what the Chinese government's doing. But being on the blockchain, it has that immutable record of when you purchase that art, it, it has that time and place wrapped up into the code. Yeah, and this point I think is vital to understanding the appeal of NFTs is that, you know, in in the I mean it's easier to ex- extrapolate this and understand this and think with a physical piece of art because you can think about okay, like that painting through time, like you think of like okay, maybe, you know, it suffered it, it went through a fire but it didn't it didn't get destroyed. It was maybe stolen and then it was returned and then it was owned by this person and this person and then it was owned by this museum. So there's a there's this like kind of arc through a physical painting that you can, especially, you know, some of these famous works that have been around for a long time. When you look at digital goods, you know, this is a little different, but you can, like you just said, it's, it's attached to the blockchain. The blockchain gives us this sense of aura, this sense of history, because we can trace back from when it was created, who created it. And we can see who's owned it and we can see the ownership uh, track. And that's because the blockchain is a public ledger. So then it creates this social consensus of the canonical version and, and the agreement between people in society that it is the original and thus has that value for being original. Yeah, so it all comes down to legitimacy and humans at the, at the very end, right? I mean, we're all people and we, it's, 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 the, it's the legitimacy that we put into Ethereum blockchain or any kind of blockchain, whether it's Solana, whatever, like into these blockchain ledgers, these public ledgers, we're putting our willingness to say these are legitimate and the the what they say, we can trust the the ledger to tell us the truth. And there's a social consensus around that. And that social consensus of like who owns what is 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 what you can say creates a sense of value for that NFT because there's a social consensus of who owns it and the history of, of that NFT. And, and that's available free and open to anyone to look at and check anywhere in the world at any point in time on either scan or on uh, soul scan or whatever it is, poly scan and on whatever blockchain you're on. And that trust um, is important. Uh, and, and that's why we do talk about the, the different values of decentralization number of nodes, how secure are different blockchains so that you can fully trust that a blockchain is immutable and it has the correct information on the ledger. To conclude, you know, Benjamin argued that what this supports the aura of original artwork and makes it more appealing and thus more valuable 
is this travel through time and space. And he, that's what makes him so awesome. And obviously NFTs are nascent and new, but there's still a lot of history, especially that's why I think, you know, you see some of these OG NFT projects command such a heavy price and a big weight. Like CryptoPunks are already one of the older, older collections, but also one of the highest valued. CryptoKitties, uh, we just saw Crypto Skulls Moon because they were one of the people found out they were from 2019. So you do see kind of these, uh, this historical aspect being played out. And that's where I think you, um, maybe you can call them like blue chip NFT projects. And it's so funny to say something a year old, like even like the Board Apes is less than a year old, but I would say that's a blue chip, that's a blue chip, you know, that has a history already. But that's a long time, a year in the NFT space is like, forever <laughs> right and, and not every nft is the popular profile pick nfts that are catching the media and the mainstream you know there are very um more painstakingly done pieces of art or protest or moments in time captured in the form of an nft that show that immutable record of time and space of when it happened and who did it first and that history is what people value yeah, it's. I mean, we're we're social creatures, and we live in a ever more connected world. And so, yes, the the value of the these NFTs is is completely tied up into the into the social layer as well as the tech layer. And I think that's also interesting to mention too is that if you don't really understand blockchain technology and how it works and and how like the public ledger aspect then maybe you don't really understand. It's just a JPEG. Too. Right. You don't see the value. Yeah. Because you don't really get what that ledger represents. And, and you, I remember you always talk, you, one of the reasons you were talking about this a few episodes ago, that like gas and why gas is so expensive because you're actually buying that time and place on the blockchain, on the ledger. You're buying that exact time and second. The only Sony transactions can be in that one second. And you paid to be part of that block in that one second to have your transaction process. So it, it is exactly that. It's exactly that. It's not just a, oh, it's kind of like this. It's, it's not just a transaction fee. You're, you're paying to be in that moment in time. You're paying to have a, a, that moment in time. And then that moment in time is recorded for forever on the blockchain. Public ledger blockchain. Yeah. So that is essentially, the, I think, the, the, the way that some of these NFTs derive their value is in their originality and the, the sense of aura that Benjamin talks about is because they have a, a history that allows them to project that I am the ori- this file is the original or the this social con- the, the one that social consensus says is the original. I think you know we've really kind of talked a lot here but let's you know kind of sum it up. So if we have NFTs that maybe are not created by because we've got this question uh, at our event, actually, it's like, oh, like, what if I just, you know, c- take a copy paste or a screenshot of this NFT that's like really valuable and then just go mint it again on the even on the same blockchain? Like, what's to stop me from selling that and uh, that exact image or that exact asset and c- collecting the same amount of ETH? Yeah, maybe they'll get bought up quick by people who don't realize that they're fakes because they want to be part of that project and they think that they're the same, but because of the public ledger of the blockchain, they will be shown as fakes. They'll, they'll be shown as not having the IP of the creator to be a legitimate project, and, and they would lose value over time. 
Yeah. So for instance, like you said before, like if, if a celebrity, like even if Jay-Z decided ever decide his, uh, sell his crypto punk, you know, at him having owned it will definitely add to the resale value versus, you know, someone who has some kind of other NFT that might not be, uh, have that same history probably won't maybe have the same value. And that's like, that's, that's just a great example of how these, this history of the blockchain is interwoven into the value. And if you took the, if you took out that aspect, you know, I don't think, you know, they wouldn't really have that, that scarcity mindset that you get from, well, only this one NFT has taken this course through the blockchain. Yeah. And, and that just kind of comes back around to the, the social consensus of it all. Um, and, and the agreement of, of what is value and, and where do people hold value? I mean, that was going back to our, our second episode on what is money, you know, the mimetic desire of people to want to hold on to similar things and, and what makes something valuable at the end of the day is, is determined by the people that own them and want them and, and desire things. Yeah. It's memes all the way down. Money is a meme. It's just a really, really good meme. Yeah. And the better the meme, the more value it has, right? The more mimetic desire you get. And that's why, like you see a lot of these NFT projects just going for memes and some of them stick. So you know, we've done full circle here. We've talked about what scarcity is. We've talked about the economy of scarcity versus the economy of abundance. We've talked about the way that scarcity functions in the digital world with digital marketing, or excuse me, digital marking, not marketing, <laughs> uh, partial availability and algorithmic immutability, which kind of comes down to, you know, these ideas of proximity, which is, you know, how close you are, time history of the aura of, of a work through space and uh we brought up a lot of good examples so anything else you want to add cash that was a great wrap-up and and the the beauty of the blockchain and cryptographic technology is that all of those attributes that you mentioned can be shown on a public ledger and and it's open in the public for people to to verify i mean this is just a kind of an exploratory episode we just wanted to you know, kind of ask these these questions and just bring up some ideas here because it is just cool and fascinating, I think, to explore how is value created in the digital air? How is value accrued? What makes something more valuable than another thing? When you, when you see these different NFT projects um, building, you know, what, what's going to separate one from the next? And, and how, how can you maybe get some alpha here by looking at, you know, is one just making arbitrary scarcity or is one actually built on some kind of cool mechanism for scarcity? And then there's new ones being created every day. So something to ponder. And if you have any thoughts about scarcity in the digital world and crypto, you know, let us know, send us a note. You can reply to us on our social media, on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, do all the things. You can check us out on the web, theblockexplorer.com. And that's it for now. We're going to wrap it up. I'd like to give a big thank you to our friend Matthew Patrick Donner, who's responsible for the Block Explorer production, including our music, mixing, and editing. Thank you for exploring the world of crypto and blockchain with us. Crypto is changing the world. We're here to ensure that you're ready. After you uh, reply on some tweets and let us know your thoughts on scarcity, please do subscribe to our podcast and share this with your friends and family. We look forward to sharing our next episode with you. Cheers. Cheers.